You're listening to What is Black Podcast, a podcast where we have frank discussions about being black in America to help parents guide their children through the positive and negative narratives. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Duget. Today, we have another great episode. So let's start the show. So I am so pleased to have as our special guest today, Danny McLean. She's a journalist and the author of a new book that just came out in April, We Live for the We, the Political Power of Black Motherhood. Welcome, Danny. Thanks so much for having me. So I first learned about the book, Danny, via Twitter. And I think that's where I'm learning about a lot of a lot of great authors and topics um, that are that are sort of focused on the podcast. And I also, you know, listened to a recent podcast that you went on the longest, shortest time. Mm-hmm. where You also talked about talked about the book. And then another shout out, my um, pediatric colleagues actually shared your article from The Nation, your recent article as a black mother, my parenting is always political, which I also had an opportunity um, to read. That's wonderful. That's great. So for me, before even reading the book or even reading the article, the idea or the concept of parenting or black parenting being political was just so was just so compelling to me. Right. Why well, didn't even even think of parenting as political? And I was just wondering, how did you come to this understanding of parenting, especially um, being a black mother? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when I was pregnant with my daughter, um, I was in my third trimester during the summer of 2016. She's two and a half now. Um, and I remember so clearly that summer, it was July. Um, and... Alton Sterling was killed by police in Baton Rouge. And um, within, it was either the next day or the day after that, uh, Philando Castile was killed by police in the Twin Cities while his partner and her four-year-old daughter sat just inches away from him in their car. And I remember um, really being at this moment. Another thing that happened that same month was there was a lot of activity around Black Lives Matter organizing and protest. And there, I believe some officers, um, some police officers in Dallas were alleged, were shot at during a, a rally um, and BLM was blamed. Um, and that's when we began to see a lot of the, the rhetoric on cable news around Blue Lives Matter and, and, and even more importantly, framing BLM as, a, as like a terrorist organization and a threat to public safety. And I had been, in addition to covering reproductive health and reproductive justice in the previous years, I had also been covering BLM organizing and, and the movement that they were describing was not the movement that I had come to know um, through my reporting. And so all of these things came together um, that summer in a way that really made me afraid um, and have an emotional response that was unfamiliar to me as a journalist. So I, I was used to, you know, taking in a lot of difficult information, being exposed to troubling, um, news events and having to make sense of them. But I think because of my training, I was always able to hold those things at, at arm's length and, you know, kind of hold them at a distance, not take them personally. And, but when I was pregnant, I was really wrapped up in a lot of fear around like, Oh my goodness, what does this mean for this child that I'm about to have? And what does this mean for my family? Uh, And I just felt fear in a visceral way that I hadn't really experienced before. 
Um, so I think that's, you know, a touch of what I mean about the politics of black parenting. We have to, I think all parents experience a heightened level of fear and anxiety, um, when we become parents, because we're responsible for shepherding this young life through a world. But I think for black parents, that fear and anxiety takes on a different kind of urgency and intensity because of the political and social context in which we live. And so that's a bit of what I mean. I also just want to briefly mention, you know, we're, we're at a moment where the black maternal health crisis is being covered, um, uh, in a way that it hasn't been before. There's a lot of attention being paid um, with good reason to the fact that black women are three to four times more likely than white women to die from uh, complications related to childbirth. And I think even a statistic like that gets into um, the politics of black mothering because once once you are aware of a stat like that, the next question is why are we dying um, and what can be done about it. And when you start to get into that question, then you start to look more closely at implicit bias and medical racism and these issues that have to do with white supremacy within our institutions. And so I think there are many, many different ways in which um, black motherhood is political. And I think, you know, you, you brought up, um, some in my in my world, so I'm a pediatrician, but I also work um, in public health. That um, the one thing I loved is how you interwove public health and health topics, like you mentioned, implicit bias, reproductive health justice, poverty, social justice issues, and you know you spoke to the growing um, black maternal maternal health disparities and health crisis. What I guess what spoke to you about the importance of sort of creating that intersection for the book regarding those public health topics and black mothering. Was it solely mm. that those statistics or w- was there something else, you know, your background reporting that kind of like put it all, you know, just made it clear to you that there is this intersectionality. Right. Um, I really appreciate that question. So um, since the end of 2012, um, I've been covering reproductive health I got a fellowship, a journalism fellowship at the end of 2012, and my beat um, at that time became reproductive rights. It was kind of broadly conceived as like reproductive rights and reproductive health. And so I, um, I started thinking about how I wanted to construct the beat, and I noticed that a lot of reporters who focus on these issues focus primarily on abortion and contraception. And these are incredibly important issues, um, and I knew I wanted to I knew that I had to and wanted to cover um, the politics around abortion and and birth control. Um, But I also started coming into contact with Black-led organizations that were talking about something different, and the framework that they introduced me to was something called reproductive justice. And what was explained to me was that reproductive justice is a, a human rights framework that asserts our right to have a child, to not have a child, and to parent the children that we do have in safe and healthy communities. And I thought that that was just so, all of a sudden things just clicked for me because I felt like black women and women of color more broadly were often left out of the coverage of reproductive rights as it had traditionally been done. And when I was introduced to this reproductive justice framework, 
I realized like, okay, this allows us, when you talk about the right to not have a child, okay, then we're talking about abortion and contraception, but the right to have a child and to parent those children in safe and healthy communities, then we start to get into a broader conversation about families and not only about families, but about, um, you know, our neighborhoods, what are our neighborhoods safe, um, gun violence, um, police violence and state violence, um, segregated schools, right? And then we start to get into this larger question about what it's like to be a parent, not just to choose to not be a parent. And then I felt like that's when I started seeing a lot of the interesting conversation around um, that, that really centered black women and women of color. And it made sense because I learned that the reproductive justice framework was created and articulated by black women 25 years ago. And so, so I think, you know, I'm a black woman, um, who has had a a range of different reproductive experiences myself. Um, but I think it was really being introduced to the reproductive justice framework and then having that guide my reporting over the past six, seven years that really, um, laid the foundation for this book. I just want to go back to, I think, really, really poignant um, quote, you know, parenting in a safe and healthy um, parenting in safe and healthy communities. And to me, that sort of contextualizes, I think um, the the one thing, the, the one theme that continued to resonate throughout the book is and how do we define family? And I think mm-hmm. the, the, the book does, you know, pays a great homage to black mothers and families but puts it in a in a sort of kind of flips the perspective of what we consider or how we define family and it kind of like all right so I'm a I'm an African American woman and I'm first generation so in some ways I felt like I should have known this right mm. known some of the history but it was still sort of startling because again you know raised to be like okay you want to look like the Cosbys right and be like the right. Cosbys um but really broadening um that definition of what family the inclusiveness of of family. My husband, I think really fits in the definition of how you define family, that sort of um, intergenerational, um, like the whole village, village approach. And I think I had that, but a little, you know, kind of bits and pieces because most of my family, they lived either in New York, we lived in DC and my husband's family, they were very much, you know, you know, cousins and uncles, they all live to, you know, they didn't live together, but they live close enough together. Right. So I was just wondering how, how, how that advocacy, I think we think is, I think of the book as advocacy as well to sort of dispel myths of mm-hmm. negative, negative stigma and definitions of what the black family is. And I was just wondering how, how did you feel about writing that in the book? I know you've it, lived it, but I'm just wondering how did yeah. you feel about, did you, did you think that you were going to be an advocate for black families? or kind of redefining the definition of black families. That's fascinating. Um, Oh, I love thinking about it in the context of advocacy because I usually really am like, I am not an advocate. I'm a journalist, but when you frame it that way and talk about the advocacy of dispel, you know, dispelling myths as a form of advocacy, I can embrace that. Um, yes, I, I knew that I couldn't tell a story about black mothering, um, without, pushing back against stigma surrounding so-called single parent families, um, unmarried women heading households. I knew that um, based on my own experience and um, the research that 
I had to confront those myths head on and talk about the inclusive way that we do family um, if I was going to talk about black mothering at all. So, um, you know, what I, what I say in the book, I talk in the book about the fact that I was raised by my mom who, um, you know, she's 65 now, she's never married. Um, I didn't, I wasn't raised with my father around. I met him when I was in my mid twenties. Uh, my mother has seven sisters. And so my aunts and uncles and cousins, first cousins were a big part of my life, but also because of where we lived in Southwestern Ohio, just outside of Cincinnati, I grew up in the house that my grandfather's grandparents built and they had settled in a community with their relatives. So I grew up with my cousins, people I call my cousins who are, they're really the grandchildren of my, um, of my grandfather's first cousin. So again, I just have this very expansive understanding of what family is. This idea of the nuclear family has never been that relevant in my life. Um, you know, when I think about who loves me and who cares about me and who I love and care for. So, and I know that I'm not alone in that. I mean, that's very common when I talk to black people. And I appreciate your point that, you know, you mentioned your husband, but you said that this is also something that you could relate to, because I think even when we do marry, um, we still are very connected to grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, and all that. And so it felt very important. And then, so I talk a little bit in the book about my own experience. I'm also not married to my daughter's father, but he plays a big role in her life. And he and I have a positive relationship and um, she spends a lot of time with her paternal grandparents. Um, so, and I feel really proud of us, you know, for forging a way, um, making a way forward and, and just prioritizing our daughter, even though our romantic relationship didn't work out. And I think we are able to do that in part because black people have this legacy of, um, of, you know, creating family families that, that work, uh, even if we don't match, um, the kind of, you know, mainstream, uh, typically, you know, white presentation of what family is supposed to look like or the Cosby version, as you put it. Um, and I also think that, I mean, it's interesting to talk about Cosby within this context. I mentioned Cosby because mm -hmm. I really like, I remember as a kid being called a Cosby kid, but that had to do with the fact that I was middle-class and I had this kind of like educational privilege and class privilege um, and I think what happens too often is that um, the kind of, you know, pundits and the marriage promoters talk about marriage as a way to lift people out of poverty. And they, and they kind of, you know, equate um, unmarried parents, you know, single, so-called single mothers um, with, with poverty. Um, and that is just not true. And so I... I think often these things correlate, but to say that if you are an unmarried parent, you will be poor, that is not, um, that's not the case. It's a, you know, correlation rather than causation. And so I spend a lot of time in that chat, in the third chapter of the book, talking about trying to unpack some of these myths around poverty and marriage and, and also get into the history of it. You know, if we, we lived through centuries of slavery where our family bonds didn't mean anything, you know, you could be in love with someone and form a romantic bond with someone, but they could be sold away from you. The same thing with your children. We didn't have any control. We didn't have the legal right to be to be parents, to be family, um, until you know post emancipation. And, and I think you can't have this conversation without mentioning the history around it. And so I really try to do that as well. And I think you you know you have like some 
some brilliant points in terms of, again, sort of flipping um, data. Like you talk about, um, you know, the data of single, single, black, single um, family headed, headed homes, households, and that 40%, you know, people tend to stress that 40% of families that are, you know, fit in that, fit in that category tend to live in poverty, but then we ignore that 60% of families are thriving. Exactly. Right. And, and I think you do, you do a great, great job of, you know, again, I think uplifting women in the sense that, and, and even our community or communities in general, is that there are root causes for, Many of it's the poverty, right? It's not necessarily the race, and I and I get and I as a as a as a provider, as a scientist, right? And as a woman of color, I do get frustrated when I see race constantly being used as a proxy. Yeah. When you know that there is there are other reasons, and unfortunately, you have to ask yourself why are there communities why are there communities of color, why are certain um, socioeconomic classes disenfranchised right and it's not just because of race there are mm-hmm. other and i think you do a great job of again this intersectionality this this sort of reckoning of you know what when these when these when this when there's this kind of cocktail this is what happens but when you mm-hmm. have this other cocktail you know you can there's families can thrive and flourish right yeah thank you for saying that and i you know one of the you mentioned kind of the different methods that I use in the book. And so I am looking at data. I'm I'm talking about my own experiences, but I also talk to dozens of black mothers and grandmothers to, to draw from their experiences as well. And so I just want to, um, you know, there's a, in that chapter, in the, in the family chapter that I interview, um, a woman named Zara Alabanza who lives in, um, Atlanta with her two sons who are her adopted sons. They're actually her biological nephews. Um, they're her brother's children who she adopted when they were, I think, one in four, and now they're like preteens. Um, and she talks about, you know, fam- how they're forming family. You know, she's, a, she's an unmarried, I believe, unpartnered person who, who also describes herself as polyamorous, meaning she's not looking for a monogamous relationship. Um, and she talks about just kind of the how her friends and um, you know her network of uh, close friends and her community, some of whom, some of which is in Atlanta, some of which is in you know Chicago or New York, how they really come together to make sure that these young people, her sons, are getting what they need. And so it was really important for me to to just talk to Black women about how they're living and how they're forming family uh, in ways that work for them. Now, you mentioned a little bit about, um, you know, some of the chapters, like, for example, you have a chapter, you know, you have different, um, the titles of the chapters, birth, family, so sort of almost broken up um, based on stages of, you know, childhood and parenting. And I was wondering, how did you, how did you come to, or how did that inform um, the the development of the chapters or what informed you wanting to take that approach um, in laying out the book? Um, so my daughter's two and a half and when I started writing the book, well, I really started writing the book, um, the sum, that summer when I was pregnant because I wrote a, I ended up writing a cover story for the nation about 
that tied my own experience with pregnancy and birth to my reporting on the black maternal health crisis. So I wouldn't say technically I started writing the book when I was pregnant, but as I started thinking about, okay, this is going to be a book project beyond just this research I've done on pregnancy and birth, I realized, um, I started thinking about it in terms of all the questions that I had about parenting and about how to do right by my child. And some of the questions were of immediate importance, like, are we going to spank her or how are we going to deal with discipline or, okay, um, what kind of books, you know, board books and picture books are we going to have around the house or, um, I'm, I want to get her in like these toddler programs, these mommy and me programs. How do I choose these early childhood development environments for her? But then some of them, them were on my mind already, but not pressing quite yet. Um, so questions like, how do you talk to young people about sex? Um, you know, I, I was at one point I was working on the book and it was when all the me too revelations and accusations were coming out. And I was thinking about, issues of consent and sexual safety and bodily autonomy and thinking like, how am I going to talk to my child about this? Um, and so I, and so it just came to me that a good way to structure it would be, um, kind of chronologically exactly what you said, you know, the book is structured in the way that you would think about how a child development develops. So from pregnancy and birth through the kind of, um, toddler and preschool years through, um, the teenage, you know, through schooling, cause there's a chapter on schools and, and how to navigate these segregated schools, um, to, um, a chapter on the body, which does deal with, you know, bodily autonomy and sex and consent and pleasure, a chapter on spiritual development, you know, how do you give your child a moral compass and um, initiate them into spiritual community. Um, and then uh, the final chapter is, is the most explicitly political chapter, and it's about really how do parents have explicit conversations with their children about their political values. So those, so, you know, the sex, spirit, um, politics, those are questions that might be more um, front of mind when you have a teenager. Uh, rather than, you know, a young, a young child. And so I thought that just structuring the book um, along, uh, you know, mirroring kind of the stages of development of a child would be the, the kind of easiest and clearest way to do it. Yes, clear to me being a pediatrician. Good. I loved it. I loved it. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy reading this book. Because, oh, um, <clears throat> you know, initially I'm thinking, all right, so political power, black motherhood, reading the title. You know, I thought I, I had my you know preconceived notions about the about the book, but then as I read it, you write so well. You know, I'm like I'm taking notes. You know, um, and again, I love the the back and forth that you have um, in your conversations with other women, other Black women, and sharing their experiences, and then sort of in some ways you reflect on that, and then you you go back into how your your mothering. Um, and your, your experiences, your lived experiences. Mm-hmm. So thank you. you. So that means a lot. Thank you for saying that. Oh, and yeah. I also wanted to, you know, I wanted to complicate this notion of what do we mean when we talk about politics, sure. because, you know, talking about, you know, that's what I was trying to do in the book. So often when people hear politics, they're thinking like electoral politics, like voting or what do I think about the Trump administration or, you know, and, and I think, okay, that's an aspect of what we mean. Um, when we talk about politics, but there's also something political about 
you know, taking your child to preschool and being the only black family there and observing the power dynamics that are playing out in the room with these toddlers when your child's the only black toddler, only toddler of color. Like that's, that's a political question. You know, how, what do, you know, what, what do we do? How do we guide our child in situations like that? What kind of conversations do we have to have with our children's teachers? Um, and in the doctor's office, you know, when we have to advocate for our children, that's, that's political. And so that was something I wanted to, I wanted to do that with the book. I wanted to expand our notions of what we mean when we talk about politics. And I think the one thing for me that was, you know, that was really heartening in reading the book is that I felt like I was validated in the mm. sense that, you know, I've been a mom now for 21 years. So, well, actually almost 21. My oldest will be 21 later this year. And and I'm just recounting like, you know, this morning, right? I'm I'm waking up at three o'clock in the morning, you know, because we're doing college college tours now for my youngest son. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I want him to do well in his physics class, get his GPA up, right? Because you want this bright, bright future for him, not only because he's he's my son, but because he's a black male, right? And so all mm-hmm. these worries in my mind, and I'm thinking, you know, I gotta, you know, I gotta get back to my mindfulness, right? I can't control what I can't control. Right. But there is that validation that yeah, we have, we have these thoughts. Um, I think, and sometimes I kind of feel like, well, are they justified? Is it paranoia? But I mm-hmm. think, you know, and, and that I have, that I have to answer for myself, but I did feel validated, right? Cause even when they were little and going to school, right. My guard was up when I got a call from the teacher's office, right. Oh, your son's right. not doing well in class. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, other, and I did, and I don't know if I had the, at that time, the voice to, to tell someone else, I may may have told my husband, you know, we have conversations, but in some ways you kind of feel this sort of like a shame or guilt because like, you know, am I, am I putting up the race car too fast? You know? So, but but I love the validation that, you know what, it could be what it is or, you know, unfortunately the way the society is, there's this anxiety, this angst that, that some black parents have. I really appreciate you saying that, um, the, you know, so I've been touring the book for the past two weeks. It came out April 2nd and the events have just been incredible. Just black people coming out, um, and, and non-black people too. But I have to say, I feel especially affirmed by black women coming who have had a chance to read the book who say, um, kind of matter of factly, like, oh, you basically just took everything we've always been doing and put it in a book. Mm-hmm. And I think some people might hear that as like, well, what did you really do? You just like did what we, you know, like what's new here. But I feel really affirmed by that because too often we're invisible. And so if there's a way that I could be helpful by naming our practices that we engage in at home and in our communities, I'm very, you know, then I, I feel like I've done my job. And, um, I also appreciate you pointing out, you know, the kind of like how sometimes we can think, oh my gosh, I'm so anxious or afraid. Am I just paranoid or like, you know, is it with good reason? And I also, I think one of the, the values of the book or one of the kind of, um, at least the, something that was positive for me in doing the book was talking to people who share those same anxieties and fears, but then also hearing from them their different strategies and the different ways that they deal with their fear and anxiety. So I think one example of that would be, you know, that in my second chapter, I talk a lot about discipline and I know you've talked a lot about discipline on your podcast from, you know, different perspectives. And I think it's really useful to have, you know, I have some voices in there that are saying, 
Spanking is violence. We don't engage in that. You know, it's a legacy from uh, slavery. And I want my children to be able to question authority and nobody has the right to put their hands on them. And then I have another mother who says, the stakes are too high. You know, I can't have my daughter out here acting any kind of way. She needs to know what is expected of her and what's going to be okay because someone else is going to punish her and discipline her much more harshly than I'm going to, even if I do put my hands on her. So I think that's important is to acknowledge that our fears are real and um, justified and there are a range of responses that we can have to those fears. And I think that the, that the people I interviewed offer us a whole bunch of different strategies that we can draw from. And I think they, those strategies, um, I think, provide, I think, a roadmap to resiliency. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of brings me to, you know, to one of my, one of my, I think the, the biggest questions I had for you was, as, as I was reading the book and the way it ended, I was wondering, did you also feel like this was a call to action? Like, I felt like there was a call to action in the book, even if it's not the parents, but even for parents, but also society in general, governments in general. So even some of that play that play on the political. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to get your thoughts about that. I do think that there is a call to action there. And I think um, really the call to action is around community building. Um, I write a lot in the book about, so I live in, my daughter and I live in Cincinnati. We live, we live here. You know, my mom is here. This is where I'm from. This is where her dad is from. So his family is here too. And we have a lot of support from family and extended family. However, I've lived most of my adult life elsewhere, um, in New York city, in the Bay area, San Francisco Bay area. And I talk in the book about how sometimes I feel pulled back to, these more progressive coastal areas where there are more, it feels like there are more options in terms of the type of schools and um, after school programs and community based organizations that I think could be really good for my daughter and good for our family. Um, But then I think there's kind of an interesting pivot in the book where instead of looking to the coasts uh, for that kind of community or models of community, I turn my attention to Detroit where I've spent some time, um, and I talk a lot about the something called Detroit Summer, which is a a youth development program that was started, I believe, in the early '90s um, by James Boggs and Grace Lee Boggs and some other longtime Detroiters uh, who really brought a kind of revolutionary and evolutionary spirit um, to the city, to thinking about the city at a time when, uh, there was, you know, massive, um, deindustrialization, white flight, um, disinvestment in the city. So you had, you know, this previously thriving metropolis where black people had gone on mass during the great migration for, for jobs in the, the auto factories. And then suddenly it becomes something else this kind of shell of its former self. And then you have these people who are really intent on, helping young people, native Detroiters, develop a love for where they're from. And they do this by um, creating this program called Detroit Summer, which um, engaged young people in community development projects like community gardening, public art projects, interviewing their elders to learn about the history of the city, so developing like media skills and interviewing skills. And so I, I lift up um, Detroit as an example of the kind of um, organizing that I'm really interested in engaging my daughter in. And so that's just one example of kind of what I'm curious about personally uh, is how do I 
become a part of a project like that? And how do I, and and I really want it to be a a kind of intergenerational multi-age project that my daughter could be involved in, that my mom could be involved in. I interview a woman here named Kimya Moyo, who started a project here in Cincinnati called Sankofa. That was a youth development project for for young black uh, teenagers that I also think is an important model. So I am trying to lift up these models of families turning to one another and saying, we don't have exactly what we need. How can we create it together? And how can we strengthen our relationships, you know, that are rooted in trust and really get to know each other and care about each other and trust each other and then create the kind of institutions that we need. So I think that is the call to to action, the kind of, um, I think it's subtle, but I think you picked up on something that is there. I'm curious about engaging in a broad conversation with other people who want to start to create these types of institutions. So knowing what you know now, and having a two and a half year old and writing the book, how has your idea of being a mom, being a black mom, either changed or or maybe it hasn't changed? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I think that um, I think I also feel affirmed. You know, I felt kind of isolated in my anxiety. Um, And it really helped to talk to people from all over the country, you know, 75-year-olds to people in their 20s, um, Midwesterners to, you know, Californians, and see that we are all just thinking about the same things and that this just is the condition of black mothering. And I think just having these conversations helped me feel certainly less alone, but also more confident. Like I can do this because we've always, we've always done it. We've always figured out a way in conditions much more dire than the ones that I'm living in. Um, and so I feel more confident. I feel a little bit more relaxed and, um, and I feel like it has kind of it's been good for my perfectionism, you know, because it's like, you're not going to get it perfect and that's fine. Children don't need perfection. They just need love and care and your best efforts. And so I think that's been the biggest, the biggest takeaway for me. I think that's great. Cause I think, you know, someone like myself, it took me, took me a little bit longer to kind of, to kind of put that together. And I think, you know, I think you've had a, you've had a great opportunity to kind of get to that sort of realization, um, at the time that was best for you, which I, and I hope other moms, other dads, um, when they read the book, they'll also be affirmed. And I think they will be, um, I think you've done, um, again, a wonderful job, um, and shedding light on what family is and our, our triumphs, our strengths, our resilience, the tough times, but also I think we, as the title says, we live for the we, Um, and it is, it is a community. And I think that, that, I think that speaks to your call to action for community engagement. If you feel differently, you can, you know, you can speak, you can speak to that. No, that's exactly right. I'm glad you mentioned the title. So the title comes from, um, the title comes from a conversation that I had with, um, someone named Kat Brooks. She's a, a mother and an organizer living in Oakland. She does a lot of work supporting families that have lost a loved one to state violence And she actually ran for mayor of Oakland. um, And she was in the middle of her campaign when I interviewed her last summer. And we were talking, we were in her office and we were talking. And um, at the time her daughter was 12 and 
she was telling me um, that sometimes her daughter will say, you know, can we just, um, can we just have dinner together, you know, quiet dinner together? Or can we, I don't want to go to this or that, you know, meeting or rally and just kind of push back against the, what the reality of their lives, which is they're in the community a lot doing community work. You know, someone just got killed by police. We need to rally around them. We need to support the family. And Kat Brooks said, you know, I, I tell my daughter all the time, but it's, and it's harsh. Um, but we don't live for the I, we live for the we. And when she said that, it just was such a perfect articulation of what I had heard from other mothers that I interviewed and also what I'd read in the mother in the black motherhood literature from people like Patricia Hill Collins who have written who have written about um, uh, community community mothering, other mothering, um, mother work. And the fact that you know for black mothers, it's 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 not usually the case that when we see a problem, um, if our child is having a problem, we don't try to fix it just for the benefit of our child and our family. We see, okay, well, if my child is experiencing this in school, other black kids are experiencing this in school. Other children are experiencing this in school. If we don't have a playground on the block, that's not just bad for my child. That's bad for all the kids on this block. And so there's a kind of community orientation, I think, to black mothering that really came through both in my review of existing literature and certainly through my interviews. And so I just, you know, and will and forever indebted to Kat Brooks for the, for her words, you know, cause I think it's really the perfect title for, for what I'm trying to communicate with this book. So Danny, before, before we wrap up, if our listeners wanted to learn more about your work and your, your journalism work and your writing in the book, where is the best, best way to reach out to you? Sure. Um, I would say, so my website is dannymcclain.com. And I am uh, on Twitter uh, at Dr. McLean, um, and that I am not a doctor. Those are my initials. So Dr. McLean. Uh, I'm on Instagram, um, and yeah, I think I would. I just so appreciate these conversations. And so, for those that are have read the book or want to read the book or learn more about my journalism, those are all good ways to to reach me. And I I would love to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining us, Danny. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to What is Black Podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. And if you are if you have Apple Podcasts, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us. And tell a friend. Until next time.